Welcome to Inside Shopify UX. As always, I'm your host, Lalao Yelayo Pearson, UX Director at Shopify. Now, most designers are accustomed to convincing their organizations why UX is important, but that's not necessary at Shopify. As our CEO and founder, Toby Lucca, explained in an earlier episode, UX plays a role in everything we do. At Shopify, you're expected to show up to the problem and bring your expertise and ideas. In this episode, I speak with our head of UX, Cynthia Savard-Saucier, about the skills and mindset that are necessary to be successful at Shopify UX. We cover broadening your team, designing the recruitment process, and leading with trust. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lola and Cynthia episode. I am talking to the amazing Cynthia Savard-Saucier, who is the reason I'm even at Shopify. So hi, Cynthia, all hail to you. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. I am happy to be here and I'm talking to the amazing Lola, <laughs> which is the reason we have this podcast. So there you go. It's a pleasure. It's a, pleasure. It's a, it's a okay. It's this a is going to be one of those mutual loving conversations. Really sorry for everybody who's not into that kind of thing, but we kind of get on. So there'll be silliness and it'll be fun. And it's just like, whatevs, whatevs. <laughs> Um, who's not into looking at two people have fun I don't know but you know some people are kind of like they want like serious hard-hitting conversations right get into them right yeah we'll try and do that too a bit and see how far okay okay. I'll Um, let you I'll let you run the show (laughs) we'll try we'll try like I said we'll try um but I will lead with a with some practical just some scene setting conversations because You are our head of UX at Shopify, so you have visibility of the entire UX craft across the company, Um, and you also just recently celebrated your seventh anniversary at Shopify. So first question, think back to when you joined the company and now, in those seven years, just walk me through like what have been the biggest changes or like the most impactful things that you've seen happen in that time frame? Oh, good question. Okay. I joined Shopify seven years ago thinking that I had just missed the party. And this is something I keep hearing like, oh, I wish I had joined earlier. And yeah. We had just celebrated the 100,000 merchant party, which was literally like a party with balloons and they had like, cake and everything and I could see the pictures and I was like oh I just missed that but turns (laughs) out like four months later we IPO'd which was a big deal obviously big party um yeah so I was like oh I did not miss that party yay and then there's just been more and more and more parties ever since um it's something that people are always like FOMO of not having joined earlier and I definitely felt that I guess I don't anymore but it took me a while to get over it yeah, um, I, I can imagine if if like you're celebrating a milestone and you join just after it's going to feel a little bit like, oh, I wasn't one of the OGs. But like mm-hmm. you were definitely an OG now. Like you were like, I know we talk in dog years at Shopify, like seven years is forever in Shopify years. Yeah, it's yeah, it's basically 70. So I'm an old granny at this point, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is great. Um, definitely living the life of a granny at this point. So we're in pajamas. <laughs> So no, that's it. <laughs> um okay, I'm not wearing pajamas. So no. after the IPO, so much yeah. has happened since. So we were 500 employees at that point and we have doubled the employee count almost every year if I'm not wrong. Um at this point we're over 
10,000 10, employees. So like there's this saying that every time you double the organization, things break and you have to rebuild it. It's definitely something mm -hmm. that we've seen at Shopify. So every time we reaches, we reach the edges of like the current structure, we explode yeah. it and we rebuild it in a way to um, reduce the amount of uh, interconnectivity necessary to get anything done. Um, yeah. So I've seen multiple versions of Shopify. I've seen the flat version of Shopify. We've introduced titles because we didn't have titles and level of impact. Uh, we've introduced on, product lines. You didn't have yeah. job titles when you joined? No. So what, what was someone called when they like showed up at work? They could just like... literally anything they wanted. They would just type whatever they wanted. Ah, so it wasn't standardized at all. And there were like... Not only was like it not... Minutes. It was not standardized nor was it shared or like was it anywhere oh, wow and there were no like seniority level so there was no such thing as a senior or a lead or anything that was introduced oh wow a year in yeah yeah okay so sometimes yeah. people are surprised that like they join shopify and they're like how far were you able to go without establishing some very standard business practices but the reality is like before that we just didn't need it so it would have been stupid to introduce that earlier it would have been such a waste of time resources and like design yeah, it's, it's, designing a process it's funny because th there is a feature of Shopify that I sometimes explain to people when I'm hiring which is like this it's kind of like a cultivated chaos because as a company yeah. we make an intentional decision that some things are more important than others and so you join what you think is like a big company and you're expecting systems and processes and everything to be like deeply organized and we do have that mostly around product execution and shipping but then in random places there just won't be a process or there, there just won't be someone in charge of anything and someone will be like why don't we do this and be like yeah I know that would be great uh, just no one's prioritizing that because it's not as important as shipping product out the door and like when I first joined it kind of messed with my brain a little bit because I was like I've just come from a super corporate company I'm expecting blah 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 and it's just not here and even as we're scaling it's not here, but I'm, I'm also not prioritizing it as a leader in the company, right? Like in my team, some of that stuff comes up and I'm like, yeah, that would be super cool. I'm actually going to get you to focus on this other thing. that's going to get some product out the door. And it's like, you just get into that mode of like the chaos just exists and we live with it. Like a lot of people make the mistake to believe that introducing and designing a process to make something twice as good is a great use of your time, but it's not. In order for a process to make sense, it has to make the problem 10 times easier to solve. Until yeah. it reaches that that threshold, don't work on the process. You're spending too much time on it. It's too costly. Like it yeah. introduces complexity where yeah. no complexity should exist. Yeah. Um, look at like just the way we do expenses, like how you expense yeah. stuff at Shopify. <laughs> Basically, people initially when they join the company, they're like, how do I expense this purchase that I made and the like it's fairly loose how we think about like the rules and it's like we believe that people will make fairly good decisions and there's a certain level of control but it's nowhere what it was when I worked at previous yeah. companies nowhere yeah, yeah. I can <laughs> tell you this what freaks people out. world does it does it does do you know you know the best example of that is actually own your own development so yes. I feel like whenever I talk to people about this they're like oh so own your own development at Shopify is an uncapped budget for spending on your personal and professional development. In previous companies, I would spend 
hours doing my annual budget where it's like, okay, I can afford to spend 750 pounds per person per year and be like, think carefully. That's like one conference or a few books or maybe a couple of this. And like at Shopify, spend what you need to spend as long as you've agreed it with your lead. And I think that blows people's mind. There's no like cost control on professional development. Cause it's just like, what do you mean? I can just spend this money. I'm like, yeah. Do you have a good reason for wanting to do it? Then you can do it basically. Like initially some employees have asked me like, but it's unfair. What if this other person spends more on their personal development? I'm like, what's unfair there? Spend more, go learn more. <laughs> it's yeah. like the Punch incentive up. are aligned. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Shopify wants you to be better and yeah. will pay you to be better and will pay you to learn and will reimburse any yeah. expenses there. Yeah. Just go and do it. Like there's nothing unfair about it. Um, yeah. It's a lot of these processes exist to impose control on employees because yeah. organization don't trust their employees. Shopify trusts the employees, Yeah, which means that a lot of the BS that happens around like the, what is it? The 13th task of Asterix. Is that how it's yeah. called in English? I don't like, know what you're talking about actually there. Oh, okay. So, um, you, you know, Asterix, like the comic book. Asterix and Roblix, Oblix. The Oblix. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There, there's this, um, one comic where like he has like 13 tasks that he needs to complete and it's sort of a making fun of all the bureaucracy. So he needs to go find this clerk and the clerk before finding them, they need to have this thing and it's on the other floor and the other floor in order to get there, you need to pass and like. Da, da, da. Um, we have Dilbert bureaucracy. I don't know if they translate right. them into French, but like Dilbert is yeah. a really good example of that. Yeah. 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 Um, I know what you're talking about, but I don't think they translate them. So I don't have a good yeah. sense, <laughs> general sense. But all that to say, like, we don't need the 12, 13 task of asterisks here. We don't need all the bureaucracy because that control doesn't need to be imposed because we just trust employee and we hire employees that are trustworthy. So yeah. unless they break that trust, like, it's more costly to verify and validate and audit rather than just allow for people to spend the money the way we think makes sense. Well, and, and the upsides and downsides are actually really easy to capture. So like I've got people on my team doing design MBAs, for example, which I'm just like mm -hmm. huge benefit, like bringing design and commercial thinking together. And like, yeah, if you're willing to put the time in to dedicate to doing something like that, we will 100% support it. And it doesn't mean like weird stuff doesn't get caught because I've also had the ping from accounts to be like, hey, Here's a thing that we spotted. So there is monitoring, but I think it's the absence of like the pre-activity audit process. That's just like an overhead that just yeah. saves everybody a lot of time. And you just kind of like exhale and get on with being an adult, as we said before, which is fantastic. So with things like own your own development and like, you know, people self-guiding, was that something that you perceived from the beginning when you joined UX at Shopify? Or is that an evolution that we've come to as well? No, I think... From the get-go, like Shopify has always been like, we hire you and we expect you to do a lot. We expect you to wear multiple hats. And if you need to learn, just go ahead and learn it. So mm. when I first joined, it was expected that every designer could do their own front-end development as well. But the reality oh, is like wow. not every front-end developer, not every designer is a front-end developer. And like the market <laughs> for designers yeah. like would be quite limited if we only looked at designers that could do their own front-end development at a professional yes. level with the same yeah. quality level as a front-end developer. Yeah. Um, so that was a different expectation back then. But like 
there was still this expectation that if you're on a team, do what's required for that product to be successful and yeah. be very resourceful and just go and learn the things that you need to learn. Um, yeah. Of course, as we scale, we include more disciplines and in those crafts, there are some experts in those crafts and that's a good mm -hmm. thing, but we still very much believe that um, we shouldn't go all out on specialties. So that's sort of a nuance that I think is very interesting and different than other companies where we will prefer hire uh, someone that has a deep T, but also has like a range, a breadth of uh, experience and knowledge and skills. But yeah. we encourage you to develop your deep T. Yeah. But you also have an expectation to have some sort of a broad T as well. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think T -shaped like, individual. a T-shaped and proper T-shaped. And to a certain extent, that's like, the original thinking around UX, right? Like, so like, I remember when I first joined UX, you know, we have these ways we talk about like, are you specialists or are you generalists? Can you do all of the things that are asked for? Do you focus on research? Do you do research? And you do through to design? And are you like a UI person? And there was a point in time when it was like, you know, one, one person for every job across the spectrum. Yeah. And then we went into like deep specialisms and it was like, you know, very, very narrow mindset. And at Shopify, it feels like we've continued to walk the, we'll expand a little bit to make room for new specialisms that we need, but we still have that expectation of breadth that people can tap into a bunch of different tools and skills that they need as and when they need to, in order to get the job done, which is again, more evidence of that grown up mindset, right? Like just be a grown up and look at what needs to happen and see if you can get it done. Yeah. And it's not to say that you, everyone can do, well, I mean, everyone as a human can do everything, but it's not expected yeah. that every employee can do and should do and should own everything. Like, of course, like there are yeah. limitations as to what you can achieve with time yeah. and resources and like shipping the things. Um, yeah. But it's more of an ethos, I guess, that we want to cultivate, yeah. cultivate. And it's even visible, like we are a UX organization, not a design organization. And the mm. reason for that is I want a designer or a content designer or a researcher to care about the UX of the product, not yeah. just the research, not just the content, not just the design. Like I want them to care about how it shows up in the product. And that is yeah. what the UX organization is all about. Basically. Yeah. If we could yeah. call it product, I'd call it product, but realistically it means something else. <laughs> so I will not, yeah. but yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. It's, yeah. It's, it's funny because I was talking recently to somebody who joined Shopify in the last six months and she was struggling to think about what's my role versus the product manager. And I have these expectations and wondering how I fit in. And I was like, okay, how about let's drop all of the expectations? What's going on in the team? What are the mm -hmm. things that you think need to happen? Which one of those things do you think you can help with? Lean all the way in. That person is just like a, they're a colleague and there could be lots of reasons why they're not meeting your expectations, but the mindset you're bringing means you're probably not meeting their expectations right now because we kind of muck in a little bit, you know, and it's, I definitely think it's an interesting mindset because it doesn't mean that we don't care about the specialism that you walk in with. It doesn't mean that we don't care about the skill and expertise, but it does say like prioritizing the problems that need to be solved is always more important than one individual having like fixed boundaries around their job, you know, which is super interesting. So can I share a story, personal story? Go on, go um, on. When we first, um, I'm going to specifically call out Brandon here. So Brandon works at Shopify. When he okay. joined as a PM, at one point, he- Brandon Chu. Yes. 
Amazing okay. guy. Hi, Brandon. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> he sent me some wireframes about um, a Facebook integration. And I was like, why is he wireframing? That's not his job. And initially, my first reaction was to be like, very protective of like, yeah. why are you sending me these wireframes? That's not what you should be doing. Just tell me what the problem is and let my designers do the wireframes and like, yeah. <laughs> Da, da, da. Like, leave it no. to the experts <laughs> leave it to yeah and i was like don't you see that if you send a wireframe it limits what like the potential of the person working on it and then they cannot mm -hmm. really do the best ux and he was like what are you talking about like they can redo my wireframes if they have a better idea and i was like well good point <laughs> just i was like i had literally had no more arguments i was like no you're right actually like as long as he doesn't send in the wireframes with the expectation like just this color like build. yeah yeah this exactly. is just like paint by number yeah then of course do send the wireframes if you're able to do them and if they're good yeah we'll push with these wireframes and we'll work on them and it really changed my perspective of like what is your ownership what is mine like it's just a big old venn diagram yeah and sometimes that venn diagram is actually overlapping quite a lot and it's not yeah. a problem it does yeah. add a little bit of like I need to figure out how to work specifically with this one person to know like what they're yes. good at, what I should trust them yeah. with and like what they're expecting from me. But it's yeah. not what should I expect from them only based on their title. And yeah. now like, yeah. because when you look at it, what ends up happening is like we create these circles that have zero overlap because this is mine and this is yours, which creates a yeah. gap. And there's things that falls in between. And yeah. that's a problem. It also becomes like a production line. So I'm just going to throw my stuff over the, over the line and you're going to come back to me and it, it does. The, the relationships, I think the relationship dynamic that Shopify kind of survives on would be affected if we didn't think of it that way. But so, okay, going back to this kind of like seven-year horizon of your time at Shopify, how have you seen that break, reshape, and evolve, that kind of like, how would we define it, like rapid uh, extreme ownership mindset that we expect and also that kind of um, – Oh, that's the book that I was thinking of, Toby's favorite book, the idea that everybody has range, right? That everybody's yeah. tea is broad and, ex and keeps expanding. How have you seen that evolve in the UX discipline over the last seven years? That's such a good question because it has. Um, well, first of all, seven years ago, like hiring anyone that was more than just new to role, like that was a little bit more senior, they probably didn't come out of a UX program because they did mm. not exist. So like the yeah. education around the role wasn't there. So there was no such a, there was no like UX school or UX program I could just like tap into and hire from directly or very yeah. few, like there might be one yeah. or two, but especially because like, Shopify was hiring in Canada, right. As well. Yeah. 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 Um, or the person had to be willing to move to Canada. So there, yeah. there just wasn't that many of these folks around. Um, one thing that has changed is we see a lot of programs that are um, being built upon the description of what we believe a UXer should be doing in product companies, which is a good thing. But at mm -hmm. the same time, I would have, a, I would wish that some of these programs also look uh, wider, um, look at opening more horizon and would sit on stronger foundations. So rather than like um, using UX as a foundation and building a UX person, using some other skills as a foundation. And like, I really believe that UX is the addition of multiple skills that are stealing from different disciplines. Uh, yeah. I would like these programs to push that idea a little bit further. Um, yeah. I think there's a world in which UX, like a generalist UX person can be very successful. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, 
we need these folks because not every company can hire a team of over 500 UXers. Like that's not the reality. Um, So there's definitely a place for them. But I would also like to see a more formalized avenue for people that come from these uh, more specific skills. So yeah. in the past, like someone could come from visual design and then become a UXer. Someone could come yeah. from architecture and become a UXer. Uh, industrial yeah. design, which is how I became a designer. Uh, communication yeah. design, um, information architecture. Like there were these different like paths. Um, yeah. And now there's another door. It's not a bad thing, I guess. It's more of a. I have seen that evolve and I have seen that shape the discipline. And now we have to look at ensuring that we bring different profiles to make sure that we're not just like pushing the UX discipline in a certain direction that only does this one thing. Yeah. And do you know what? It's important because even when I first started out in UX, the most influential people I got to work with were like an ex-nurse, an ex-architect and a psychologist, right? And they they were the UX leaders in the company that I worked for at the time, and they were absolutely amazing. But I quite like our internship uh, program because we recently had an interns episode and we spoke to somebody who was previously a nurse and is now at Shopify doing UX internship and somebody who came from um, talent and kind of did the whole company jungle gym. And then one of those people went to D school. So we're like... I feel like Shopify's internship program is still optimizing for that range of previous experience above and beyond. Did you go and get a UX or design qualification from the right educational institution before we let you in in the door, which is, I think, quite different to a a few other leading companies in the space. And I I feel like we're better for it, you know? Totally. Like, I don't want that to come out as a cliche that diversity comes in and is strengthening. Yeah. Uh, discipline it's just a fact that it is yeah. and this is something but it doesn't happen like it's it's not happening naturally organically like you have to design the recruitment process and what we are recruiting for to ensure that we have these different backgrounds that are represented in the discipline yeah. skills so yeah. it's just not something that you can like close your eyes and it just will magically happen like it's something you kind of have to be intentional about you have to reward it you have to understand and have appreciation for the different um skills that comes from these different backgrounds yeah okay so then back to your seven year horizon what is something that you think we used to do a lot better maybe at some other point in shopify's time frame than we do now oh um I think this is because we were a smaller team and a smaller product as well. So Shopify now is massive. It's more than just a Shopify admin, which used to be the only product we had. Um, But now we have Shopify admin. We have POS. We have the app. We have all of these other products as well. So shop the app. And then we have everything that is happening in growth land. So we have a bunch of tools that exist. Um, and then all of these different programs. So it's massive. And there's no such thing as someone that can keep all of that context in their brain. Like there's so much. Um, So in the past, I feel that we were better at, uh, from a UX standpoint, at like having a general like zoomed out vision of the whole admin. And then when we were designing, we were designing with a better sense of how it supported the overall system. Now I do see a little bit more of a... um, zoomed in solving strategy. Um, 
And again, this is something that if you just let it go, it will just continue to happen and then you will get very siloed solution. So you need to actively work at forcing people to zoom out and see how their solution um, impacts other teams. Again, that yeah. sounds like just cheap business books, but it's really what I'm seeing. And it's really hard. You know, yes. it's really hard because so you lead core, which is like the engine of Shopify. And I work on the other side in merchant services, which is like the infantry division that runs out and creates new ideas and products and services. And I am never not um, shocked at how much we need to do more sharing across those yeah. two fronts. Right. Like I assume that everybody understands everything that my team is doing all of the time because we're constantly marketing and we're constantly in the socials and we're always doing this. And then folks are like, dude, I've been busy working on like this developer feature deep in the admin. So like what you're doing in finance and money is like another language and another planet. And I'm like, oh shoot. Okay. Let's reset again and again and again. And it is a real challenge at scale to keep that context going across teams and organizations. Like I have this expectation from anyone working at Shopify that not only are they expert at what they do, they are expert at commerce and hopefully Shopify too, or become expert yeah. at Shopify. But yeah. I've like over the course of seven years, I felt like after one year, I was an expert at the Shopify admin, like I could do anything. And then yeah. I got complacent a little bit and I stopped yeah. like really looking at the new things that were being built and how things were changing and evolving. So after like two years, I think I started lagging and I was like, oh no, I do not know the admin anymore. So I need to be more intentional and spend time and actually book yeah. schedule, like some me using the admin time <laughs> uh, yeah. to just get up to speed. And it's just sort of a cycle where I feel like, okay, now I really know the platform. Now I need to spend some time relearning certain things. So we are shipping for, for example, like Metafields is such a good example. It's really yeah. changing the structure of content in the admin. This is yeah. so important, but you just won't yeah. learn it magically. You have to just spend the time and learning and, and try and use it and try to use it and play around with it and see how merchants would use it and see the different use cases and where it resurfaces and how it changes the structure, the skeleton behind the content. Um, just these things we're shipping every day. So you kind of have to be intentional about staying on top of the product and not apply your seven-year-old understanding of the product to today, which is so hard because sometimes I'm like, oh, I know this thing. I'm very confident that I know this thing because I've yeah. done it. I literally designed the thing, not considering that like three other teams ended up like owning this feature after and added so much things to it. So you don't yeah. know it anymore. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm even having that problem two years in. <laughs> I'm yeah. literally like, oh yeah, I used to work in that team. We did blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no, it's been through three iterations since then. And like, actually the thing that you did is, you know, long gone. And it's like, oh, I'm just going to sit here humbled for a second. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm going to relearn and be like, okay, let me ask some new questions and figure out. Um, I feel like that places a higher burden on UX leadership because we are much more obligated to have that perspective, right? Like, the, you know, the reason it's so easy is because we optimize for get deep into the problem and ship solutions as quickly as possible. So like a lot of ICs are deeply embedded in, in quite narrow product areas, but as leadership, your horizon is broader. And so like, you have to work harder to bring that context to your team and to refresh and to keep plugging out, which 
I think sometimes challenges people I see in interviews, which is, you know, let's talk about that a bit where they come, leaders will come to an interview and they want to tell you about everything that they've mastered in UX process. And you're like, great, except what's going to make you successful at Shopify is so much broader than that and so much bigger than that. It's actually a mindset that you need to bring that is much more about absorbing and activating information and then like transforming it so it's useful as opposed to, you know, the best way to execute on a double diamond um, <laughs> or like agile practices. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> that caught me by surprise. This is so true. <laughs> I, st- I still see portfolios where people lead with the double diamond and it's like, I get it. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm not saying let's not lead with this. I'm just like, we have now evolved to a point where it's like the basics are yeah, accepted. Now we're elevating beyond that, right? So tell me a story that starts with something a bit more elevated than like, here's a double diamond. <laughs> yeah, it's like a writer that would just start talking about the grammar of a sentence and the construction of a sentence. It's like, yeah, like that's one of the tools. That's one of the methods. That's like a basic, that's obviously important. Yeah. Yes. But that's not what makes you a great writer. Like, yes. Being a master at grammar, exactly. (laughs) Like, oh, I know everything about grammar. That's awesome. Good for you. Doesn't make you a great writer. Mm. Um, For sure. Uh, Does it, like, it's interesting. You say it it puts a lot of burden on the UX leaders. And Mm. I want to push back on that. As in, like, I I understand. I agree with what you're saying. But to me, what is deeply aligned with the reason I chose this profession is not a burden mm-hmm. to me personally. And That's a good point. Yeah. Basically I'm just expected to have, um, to deliver on the reason I joined this company and the reason I chose to become a UX person. Like you become a UX person often, not everyone, but often yeah. because you want to make a difference. You want to build better products for the users. Like that's yeah. a reason, like you're using your, I don't know, banking website, not all banking websites, but a lot of them are quite frustrating to use. And you're like, oh my God, there has to be a better way. I could do a better job at this. Like I want to work for that company and just make it better. Like this is a sentiment that fires you every morning. Like every time I feel like throwing my laptop out the window because I'm trying to connect to the government, whatever website, and they need to send me a letter and like, oh my God, I'm going to kill them. Um, (laughs) So like, this is what fires you. Yes. At Shopify, it's like, take that fire and deliver on it. And I don't care about what is required for you to deliver on that. So to me, that's not a burden. It's really just Shopify saying like, you will be evaluated on the impact that you have on the overall experience of the product for the whole product to be better. Um, So yeah, I just don't think it's a burden in that sense. But does it mean that it forces... UX leaders to stay on top of their shit constantly? The answer is yes. And does it mean that UX leaders have to spend a lot of time gathering context, learning, spending time with the product, with users, with their employees, with groups, doing a lot of reviews? The answer is yes. And I think I I really like that distinction you're making, actually, because it it, it is an overhead that maybe is unusual, um, but it is something that is innate, right? It's like, the core of user-centered thinking or like um, I sometimes talk about colleague-centered thinking where the thing we need to get done needs to understand the context in which it needs to get done in order to be more likely to succeed. But I do think it is interesting how we apply that at Shopify and, and the leadership profiles that succeed here are more, 
it's almost like we have that concept of user-centered thinking and processes like an inner, but our outer isn't talking about that. Like we don't lead with, we are now going to UX this problem or we're now going to apply <laughs> this well-known method. But I also see that from product and I also see that from engineering. Like engineering leaders don't come in with like, um, you know, big paradigm statements. They just talk about here's the problem, here's how we're going to fix it. And so we all learn to be in that space together, which I do think there is a transition shift, but it's much more natural than maybe what we're used to. And yeah. it's it's almost like I say to people like, uh, you know, some things it's like if you were to follow your instincts, you would probably work this way. But then if you're taught to do things differently, then it feels weird to switch back into like this more instinct driven mode, which is basically what the problem is. Yeah. So I'm going to say something controversial. So someone <gasps> oh. might come at me after that. You know, like the double diamond thing, someone is incentivized to promote the double diamond and someone makes money out of that double diamond. And like, mm. this is true of every single UX processes. There's someone that has a book that makes money out of promoting a certain process and you should not fall outside of that process or you are bad yeah. or breaking the that UX process, process is the answer to every problem you could ever have in UX. So you must follow it all times. A process is a tool, but can you imagine yeah. like the salesman selling you like a, a hammer to like the construction or anyone that works in construction and being like, you can only use this hammer. And if you don't use this hammer, you are definitely a bad builder. And it's just yeah. ridiculous that you would ever build. And I would never buy a house that has not been like built with this specific hammer. And yeah. what fool would be using Like, no, of course not. Like it's a tool. It might be a great tool. Yeah. But like the, the existence of that tool doesn't mean that it is the only one, the most appropriate that should be used every single way without any exception or derogation or adaptation yeah. based on context. Yeah. And I see that problematically being applied yeah. constantly in UX. And yeah. this has been promoted by some very visible actors in UX that are still incentivized oh, yeah. to continue promoting certain processes. So yeah, shot fired. And they're also in incentivized to complain about how terrible UX is these days. And back in the day, it used to be so much better. And I like, are I'm you sorry, but I call now, Lola? Am I, am I, am I <laughs> subtweeting people? Am I, am I thinking about specific articles from founding fathers who are basically trying shit? Um, but you know, I, I, I get wound up about that as well, because I think the other part of it is we do have, like, we, we understand that sometimes in, in doing any kind of user-centered work, your biggest area of risk is problem definition, right? Like, do you actually understand the thing you need to solve here? And so we spend a lot of time as a, as a UX industry talking about that particular state of the process, but I feel like a lot of our tools stop there. And what pisses me off is when people kind of hammer just there and it's like, okay, but here I am in the trenches on the problem creation side and you have nothing for me. And everything that you've developed for this end doesn't help me with the inevitable limitations and constraints on people, resources, possibilities, money. And it's like, here is where I actually need to live long term. Yes, I should definitely get a bunch of things right here. And there's a core that needs to be met. But like beyond that, you're pretty much useless to me. And I'm kind of like, stop whinging about this part of the process if you're not in the trenches on the other side, you know? The reality back to that is double like, diamond. <laughs> back to the double diamond. A good product is one that is used and solves a problem. Ships. It's not yes. one that is amazing, but never ships or is never used or is never discovered. Like the reality is like, 
marketing that product is as important to the product being good than building the product. And yeah. building the right product is as important as this product being usable by certain type of users. Like all of yeah. these things that sometimes are considered like, oh, like the front end implementation, that's outside of my scope. That's not my problem. And that's an engineering yeah. problem. I've done my job. No, like you've built a product that was not buildable. Like congrats, yes. but like, oh, you've cooked this amazing meal that no one can eat. And because you- It's pretty as hell, but- yeah. yeah, it's great ingredients that you cannot eat. Like, yeah, no, like you're not a chef. Yeah. yeah. You're a stylist, which good for you. Some people need, but you're yeah. not a chef. No. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a difference. There's reality and reality hits you in the face when you join a product company. And you yeah. understand that as a UXer, your role is not to build a UX empire. It's to build a great product and do what's needed for the product to be amazing. Yeah. And so different than a lot of the consultancy work that can be done sometimes around it. Yeah. And I think, I think again, landing back to like the positives of this approach, which is too much of our energy sometimes in the UX industry is spent convincing people to let UX in, exist, right? It's <laughs> to let us exist, let us do this mm -hmm. thing. And I do think it is refreshing and actually challenging at Shopify to find that you don't have to do not even a single jot of that in this company, like not even a little bit. What you actually just have to do is show up to the problem and come with your expertise and your ideas. And if most of your experience is spent in campaigning mode, then the actual like making the world better bit might not be your strength. And that that becomes, I think, the the biggest schism that people face in their early few months. It's like, okay, I, I had a workshop for getting stakeholders aligned, but they're kind of aligned. Okay. I, I had a workshop for um, helping us define the problem. Oh, okay. We've, the PSN has done, you know, product support network has done a really good job and we've got all these tools and this research. So like the problem is defined. What needs to actually happen now is you need to formulate an opinion and get a thing shipped. It's like, Ooh, Hmm, haven't done that in a long time. My last job, mm -hmm. we spent eight months not shipping anything. So, woo, you know, so it becomes a different kind of challenge, which I, I find fascinating, but I do think is a healthier challenge for most UX leaders and like in their career, they should absolutely transition to like the problem definition, like, uh, sorry, the problem solution, the execution part of leadership where like you are shipping products on a yeah. daily basis, not just telling people what's wrong with their problem definition step. Yeah, for sure. I think it comes with a, there's a little downside to this whole idea of like UX not having to advocate for itself a lot at Shopify. Yeah. Like we kind of have a seat at the metaphorical table now just show up and like use your yeah. voice sort of thing. Is that frankly, like you're not promoted for your ability to advocate for your craft. Like this is yeah. the advocacy is not what gets you promoted, which means that like, I, I certainly know for a fact that advocating for UX is not like, the thing that I do best. And yeah. um, we all do things better than others. And like advocacy is not my thing. So I find myself having to tell like my leaders, like, hey, don't let the other discipline win prematurely. Fight yeah. your fight. Like fight yeah. the UX fight. It's important. Don't just yeah. come to me and say like, oh, for engineering reasons, we didn't do that. Like when someone comes to me and be like, oh, for tech reasons, I'm like, woohoo, mm -hmm. code word, alert, alert. <laughs> You didn't, you didn't stand your ground. You didn't advocate yeah. for the importance of UX. So like, it does come at that cost where like yeah. sometimes just for the sake of shipping, you get to um, compromise your own standards. And this is something yeah. like 
we have to fight a little bit. We have to we have to explicitly say like no like lean advocate in. for UX a little bit. Lean in. Just just make sure that you're advocating for your point because engineering will be advocating for their point. So don't they don't need you to advocate on their behalf in that conversation, you know? Yeah. But I think the trick there is advocate on the basis of the product outcome. So like some people would be like, oh, this is what we heard in the research and we're not responding to the research. And it's like everybody would love to respond to the research, you know, with caveats and and understanding the context of that. But actually, if what you're saying is, hey, we really need to ship this feature and here's a long term impact of not doing it. And you're able to make that case. You're advocating for the UX, but you're doing it in the context of the product outcome that is much more grounded in what everyone cares about than just here's what my discipline thinks is important, which is where I think the inevitable block comes through. It's like, just because your discipline thinks it's important, engineering doesn't win that battle. Like if engineering won that battle, we literally would have like the most boring product suite, not because they're not interested in building cool shit, but because it's all really hard to build. And so they would always go for the simpler, easier thing to execute. And so none of us gets to win on the, this is what my discipline feels is important battle you end up having to win on like this is the product outcome that is important to all of us and therefore let's negotiate that outcome not just the the craft-based element you know yeah i mean it's not that anyone is lying to the other party being like oh we cannot like i've never heard an engineer lying to me saying like we can all build it it is impossible technically and in fact it totally was possible it was just more costly they will say things like it's harder or it's more complicated or it'll take more time and then there's a conversation around like okay if it takes two extra weeks is it worth it it takes two extra months then no maybe it's not worth it we can build more stuff to drive more value to the users in the meantime so this is a conversation that we need to have rather than just being like "Mm, it's going to take them more time which is true it will but maybe it's worth it and they would agree as well yeah. that it takes more time and it's worth it so um anyway yeah. lean into that conversations and help Leading them all the way in exactly exactly so okay so i want to take it oh god we've been talking for a while gosh I know. <laughs> this is how it happens okay let's take it to lighter things because okay in in the seven years as well i was reflecting on this yesterday tooling has really changed for ux craft yes. right so I remember still using initially Illustrator. Like I remember most of my interaction docs in the early days were all like Illustrator files and you kind of got everything and whatever. So I want to do a kiss, marry, kill. Are you familiar with this? Does this translate into the French in the same way? Yes. But it's through the ages of tools, UX tools, design specific tools. So kiss, marry, kill. You have Adobe Photoshop, Sketch, or Figma? Oh, that's a tough <laughs> one. It's a really tough no. one. I love all these tools. I really do. They all did slightly different things, but they were popular yeah. at different times in that process, right? Sketch taught me that I could do design. I know it sounds crazy, but I used to call myself a UX designer, which meant I do not do visual design. I do not touch visual. That is not my job. I have a visual designer that will color my wireframes, literally. Um, And then Sketch appeared and I was like, oh no, I can design. Wait, what? That's new. Like (laughs) I never even tried it. So Sketch was amazing. So I will say I will kiss Sketch. 
Photoshop. Oh, I cannot say kill Photoshop. I guess kill Photoshop, but I loved it so much at one point. And it had such an impact on the world. Like a lot of the things we've designed like is thanks to Photoshop. So I guess kill it because it's very old and I really love it, but it's old. And um, marry Figma because I'm someone that believes that you marry for the future and that Figma right now at this point is the best tool we have for now in the future. So that's a boring answer. I'd say kill Axure. I was a big Axure fan girl. I used it so See, much. I purposely didn't bring in Axure because Axure had like no visual design capability whatsoever. <laughs> like it was just bare bones wireframes, but that was painful to use Axure back in the day. I was like an Axure like, library shared like oh really i use it so much yeah Super I, I started using it doing some um like a website redesign and an app redesign for uh a bank in canada mm -hmm. and we had to do like the wireframes for all of the different resolutions literally yeah i had like thousands of pages in that actual file like the thing wow. in itself was a beautiful architecture <laughs> <laughs> we had to design the file in order for them to make sense before even designing yeah. the thing. It was it was yeah. a big endeavor. Um, but that said, the second that I stopped using it, I started using Sketch. I was like, whoa, okay. Yeah. What yeah. a restrictive tool. It's funny because I feel like the tool, the evolution of tools in a way is like a good example of like what the industry prioritizes, right? So like I definitely would marry Figma just because the like collaboration is yeah. is the level at which you'd always wanted and like for a remote company like that's second to none but also the fact that it almost like it forces you to think about the next point of usage for the artifact right like so like the worst example in that lot I think is like um you know photoshop illustrator or even like sure to a certain extent forced you to focus on your output as the individual so you would design your file and you design your layout beautifully for the thing that you were doing, but you had no real technical connection to the next step in the process. So like you get a Photoshop file and someone's still got to slice that up and actually get it ready for someone to build. And then you'd always get these weird things where like a gradient or a blend had been created and the devs like, I cannot make this thing come out on the page. And so you'd be kind of like having this battle. Sketch was better, but without the same level of visual finesse. And I feel like Figma gives you that level of, visual finesse but it still optimizes for like what needs to happen after you've done your bit so you're less focused on like a gorgeous cover page and like really great notes and like I remember spending hours lining up my notes and like my little circles with numbers for like the interaction guide <laughs> it's just waste of time shit but what we had to do at the time yeah it's crazy to think of a world without tools like Figma I know like if you just like catapult us we can't go back yeah. like it, it it's crazy to imagine that this didn't exist. Yeah. And Figma does and something very well. And it's so young as well. well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I know. It does this thing at, like, it's also a fabulous product company. Yeah. Like, there's a How I Build This episode with Guy Raz yeah. on Figma. It's, yeah. it's a great, great listen. I really encourage everyone to listen to it. Um, it's such a great product company as well. It has a great design philosophy not only like in how designers should be using it but also like designing their own product yeah. it's very interesting very very interesting i see the teams they're pushing they're taking some 
risk with fig jam, their bowl. They do some fun stuff as well. They really believe in fun. Like there's yeah. some small interactions in it that are really just meant to be fun and satisfying. They're just satisfying. Um, so yeah. I really like that. It's still, it's a power tool and you have to learn how to use it for it to be yes. working well. Good. So I would say yeah. it's like on the opposite spectrum of Keynote where you can do basically almost everything in Keynote and yeah. becoming a power user of Keynote is very easy. Um, yeah. Becoming a power user of Figma is hard, but it's, yeah, it's like becoming a surgeon. Like once you do, yeah. oh my God, that's powerful. But you know what? That's one thing that Sketch really provided that I think no other tool has ever done is like Sketch was was able to provide you that ladder of like entry level to expert with a much smoother ramp up where it didn't feel mm -hmm. like you needed to be a power user to really get the benefit or like inheriting a, a template from someone else didn't feel like this. Where is my like, oh, my God, am I in the right canvas? And like, have I done this? And I, oh, I need to go pick. It didn't feel scary, which Figma can sometimes feel, but it's just so much better. Um, but realistically, we started earlier in the sketch career, and then they added some feature on it. So we iteratively learn the complexity of yeah, these features. True. So yeah, that's true. That's we might true. have a little bit of a bias. Here. There's there's definitely usage bias on that. Okay, I have one final kind of you know formal proper interview question for you, and then we're going to do the last silly bit. Um, so seven years with five hundred people. What are your like biggest hopes for the next seven years and like the next? I mean, if at this rate of growth, we're talking thousands of UXs at Shopify eventually, like at some point, right? So like, what are those things that you're projecting into the future of UX at Shopify as we scale? Oh, that's a great question. I've never thought about it as a seven year, like seven years horizon, seven year horizon. I, my hope is that we feel like we belong, mm. that we feel secure in our decision, in our decisions, which allows us to take a lot of risk. And that through a few very bold UX risks, we discover some great product avenues. Okay. So I would say like that some of the proudest moments in my career is when the UX team was like questioning this check mark in checkout and being like, why do we have this check mark? Couldn't we make that check mark better? It seems a bit redundant. And then that turned into shop. And like when you walk back the whole thing, it's crazy to say, like, oh no, no, it was definitely a UX yeah. question that led to shop. Like, yeah. Yeah. I want to look back in seven years and be able to trace that journey mm. to a lot more places. That's but so in cool. order to find that, the UX person has to feel very confident in their position, in their decision, in their value, in like feel like they're allowed to have that. They're yeah. entitled to make that exploration, to ask those questions, to push the product in a certain direction. I feel that sometimes we um, we take the backseat and we don't allow ourselves. We need to be told like you are allowed to do it. So yeah. This has been my objective a lot in the last year, like saying, no, 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 UX, you belong. You are here for a reason. We are investing in UX. There's a reason for UX to be at Shopify. And that reason yeah. is you. And that reason is the output. And like our yeah. CEO deeply believe in the value of UX, as you know. Um, yeah. So that's that's my hope for it. Yeah, that's really nice. And I, I think it's important to call that into the room in that like, 
if you're not fighting for your discipline, it can look like you're a bit invisible because no one's shouting from the rooftops, but actually you're very, there's a lot of potential. You could be extremely visible. You just have to shift modes and we, we have to keep showing up. Um, but we also have to keep giving people that psychological safety to do that, right? Like that risk taking thing. And I do think that's like a challenge of scale, you know, in the, in a world where like the office environment incubated your risk taking capabilities the world of remote and, you know, having tens in a team versus hundreds in a team challenges us to think about, like, how do we scale those opportunities for people to feel safe sharing a dissenting opinion in a Slack channel with 2000 people in it, for example, you know, it's like, yeah. well, that's a really big mental overhead, but it's a powerful one. And the permission is there, but it's reminding people that they have that permission on a regular basis, you know? Yeah, we achieve that as well. Like we have a, a much bigger, stronger UX leadership team that, than ever because we're growing. So we have yeah. better individuals joining that leadership team, showing up as product yeah. leaders, showing up yeah. as strategic partners. And that gives us more um, examples to point at and say like, yeah. okay, be a Lola, you know, yeah. <laughs> look at what Lola does for product, like do the same. Be a Monica. Don't swear like, as much as me, maybe. <laughs> okay, maybe, yeah. maybe. <laughs> Um, thank you so much, Cynthia. Okay, we have the last funny gimmick that we've got here. Our Honestly. amazing, what do you call this? And actually, like, I'm guessing you can tell us what the French word yeah. for it is. What is so it? So it's, um, let me translate it. It's quack, quack. You know, like the sound of a, of a duck? A duck. Yeah, it's yeah. quack, quack. But in French, it's coin, coin. And coin oh. also means corner. So ah. it's called a like corner, corner, which is the sound of a of a duck which is quack quack how interesting so we've got some very strange contributions of name here I don't remember what we used to call it in school but various people have said it's a chatterbox which is nice and friendly uh the other is a, a cootie catcher which I don't know if that resonates with you but like cooties used to be this thing that like you would call in school you'd say someone has cooties it's like oh yes to go near yes. them it's like this is a cootie catcher I have no idea where that came from but um I quite like coin 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 Quang quang. Is that it? Quang quang. Quang quang. There you go. Quang quang. Okay, pick one. You have a banana, a rocket, a lettuce, and a shopping cart there. Oh, if you know me, you know I picked a cart. Okay. (laughs) C-A-R-T. Okay, the numbers are seven, eight, three, and four. Seven. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And you now have one, two, five, and six. Let's do two. Let's do two. Let's do, okay. Okay. We'll do, okay. Two, two. Let's go with two. Um, What is your favorite iconic design, digital or not? My chef knife. I have a Japanese chef knife and you will hear me talk about my knives forever, but a really well-designed and sharp knife makes you want to cook, not only enjoy cooking, but want to cook. Whenever I sharpen it, I look for things that I can cut around my house. I'm a real <laughs> psychopath, but it is the most enjoyable experience to slice through a tomato like it's actual butter. Oh, wow. It's what the is best. the name of this knife? I don't think it has a name. It comes from a, when I was visiting Japan, I went to the Japan like knife maker it has a name steel maker okay. knife maker like yeah okay person that I don't know knives. makes knives yeah and they personalize a knife for you and it's a very famous shop in kyoto um so oh, if wow. you're there hit me up i'll give you the recommendation it is amazing 
Oh, that sounds so amazing. It, I love the simple objects that just do their job really, really well. That's like the 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 never-ending quest in my mind is like everything that I do, if it could be defined as a simple object that does its job really well, I can die happy. And a knife yeah. is a perfect example of that. <laughs> I want Shopify to be the knife for Shopify to wear, be like Japanese knife. Beautifully designed, personalized, and effective. And makes you want to do that thing. It yeah. makes you want to be an entrepreneur. It makes you want to do the work of becoming an entrepreneur because it's so joyful yeah. to use the tool. I love it. Cynthia, this has been a fun, fun, fun conversation. Thank you so much for sharing with my unstructured mess of questions. Uh, we are so lucky to have you here at Shopify and uh, it has been a pleasure to have you on the actual podcast itself. I will, we will tag Cynthia's socials. Go follow her, go buy her book. Um, it doesn't prescribe a single method or process, but it is a very good book. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Lola. Thank you for allowing me to not even answer your very first question. <laughs> did you not answer the first question? You I don't did. think we ever got to it. I mean, it's fine. We got there in the end. We did a thing. We got it there. Works. We got there. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Inside Shopify UX. Check out more from our team or find out how to join us by visiting ux.shopify.com. Inside Shopify UX is hosted by me, Lola Yolayo Pearson. Produced by Jen Shaw. Assisted by Isabel Hamilcarassi. Edited by Michael Bussa. With art and graphics by Alicia Giroux. Danny Chavez-Ackerman. And Trevor Slovani. Music by Silent Quiet Spaces. On the next episode of Inside Shopify UX, we're talking about research. <laughs> <laughs>